get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney. We're here in the middle of the Winter Olympics. I have become an official luge expert. I just know everything about the luge, so we're just bringing up. <laughs> We're just bringing a whole bunch of expertise to you this week. Justin, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm just recovering from a vicious sword fight I had with my two sons. But other than that, I can't complain, man. I'm doing well. Those can get real. They can, they can get real, man. I, can't, I was on the losing end, but I'm going to get them next time. <laughs> well, that's that's good. It's uh, I was home in Buffalo for uh, for a wedding, so drove up Friday. Uh, drove back Sunday, so it was it was quite a bit of driving, but but well worth it to to see family and and uh, and dance a little bit, and uh, and it was just good to see folks. Good stuff. This is another one of those weeks when there was so much news; it was even hard for us to figure out what to cover. Uh, there's so many stories that we could cover today that we may, we just may not get to. I even had my neighbor Chuck suggest some pretty good. Uh, issues to me that we just couldn't get to this week, but we will get to them, man. There's a lot going on, brother. Where there, there is, and you know, we've talked about uh, Russia and collusion before, and I think uh, an episode just several weeks ago, uh, I, I was just discussing how uh, how difficult it is, even for uh, you know me as someone who who consumes a lot of news and and uh, and uh, d- does this for a living to stay up with each iteration of this story but 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 this week uh, I don't think it was the the final break but we certainly saw a pretty uh pretty substantial development as Mueller uh, announced uh that 13 Russians would be indicted as part of an effort to aid the Trump campaign uh back in 2016 and so the New York Times uh uh you know, reports the the indict the indictments is saying that the Justice Department charged 13 Russians and three companies on Friday in a sprawling indictment that unveiled a sophisticated network designed to su- subvert 2016 election and to support the Trump campaign. It stretched from an office in St. Petersburg, Russia, into the social field into the social feeds of Americans and ultimately reached the streets of election battleground states that that is a uh, that is a bold and sweeping you know uh header from the new york times uh justin as you saw this roll out is this uh, uh is this the you know really a a shoe that's dropping or or uh, uh what did you think of the reaction to the indictment yeah, this is serious business. Uh, I, I, this is a serious shoe to drop. I think there's another one that uh, may drop. And uh, if you hear the, uh, the the Department of Justice, as they talked about it, they left the door open to other things coming about. But this was a 37 page uh, indictment that was unsealed uh, by the FBI 
And we found out a few different things. And you mentioned some of them. You know, this was a conspiracy that actually started in 2014. Uh, it's so that means it started even before Trump was even a, a candidate. Um, much of it involved a company uh, named by that went by the name as of the Internet Internet Group. Uh, it involved hundreds of people, including a uh, hundred unwitting Americans. Uh, some of these people were activists who helped the Russians set up rallies and protests. Some of these folks were even Trump campaign workers, but we're seeing that they're saying that they were unwitting. They actually didn't know that they were working uh, with Russians. Uh, the other thing is we found out this was a well-funded campaign, right? Uh, apparently one of Putin's allies, who was a billionaire, uh, is one of the people who was funding the effort. And this effort was receiving as much as a, a $1.25 million a month really to take down, as you said before, uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton. Uh, it also was aimed secondarily at, at uh, uh, folks who were going against Trump in the primary, like uh, Marco, Senator Marco Rubio. Uh, and we saw that actually this team wasn't necessarily against Bernie Sanders either. So there was some there was some directives not to go against Trump or Bernie Sanders. So I, I found that to be interesting. Now, what this indictment did not address, and that's that's important, too, is collusion. So it hasn't addressed collusion. Uh, the Department of Justice and the FBI haven't ruled that out, but it, but this particular indictment didn't address that. It also didn't address uh, the obstruction of justice uh, charges that some people, allegations that some people were kind of flinging around, or the hacks. Again, that doesn't mean that these things didn't happen. It doesn't mean that the Russians didn't play a part of, in it, but this particular indictment didn't touch that. Also important to note was, again, that no Americans were charged with willi willingly participating in this conspiracy. Uh, so there were those that participated, but uh, what's being said is that they actually didn't know what was going on or that this was part of a Russian conspiracy. Yeah. It, it, you know, uh, again, so much of this, Justin, I, I was reading these stories and thinking about so many things that you've been focusing on over the last several months, uh, everything from, uh, you know, it had been reported before, but now as part of, uh, you know, the uh, the release of these indictments, uh, these Russians were posing as Christian activists. They were posing as anti-immigrant groups. They were support. They were uh, they were posing as supporters of Black Lives Matter. Um, and uh, this sort of use of uh, movements and you know the identities that the folks hold most dear as a way to subvert um the um the american political process is 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 a pretty substantial development uh the 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 way that the increasing sophistication of technology has facilitated this uh is is another thing that we've discussed on this podcast and i i was not uh, impressed by i mean these these are um if this if these allegations were about Russians interfering in anything other than our partisan political process, you would have seen mass outrage. And most importantly, you would have seen politicians and le leaders of all kinds saying that our number one priority should be making sure that this never happens again. And yet, you know, for me, it was just another tale of, uh, uh, yes, we saw some strong responses from from some folks. but. Mostly it was muted, uh, uh, especially on the right. And it was muted because 
it involved an, an election. It involved uh, partisan outcomes, and uh, that that just can't happen. You read this, you read this story, and it, it was Trump this time. But like you said, Justin, it it very well could have been Bernie Bernie Sanders who had benefited the most from this. The Russians really didn't uh, really didn't care <laughs> uh, as far as that went. So uh, I, I thought these were these were pretty stunning, but. Uh, for me, it lowered my expectations for um, if Mueller comes out with more substantial with indictments against Americans or uh, the documentation and uh, uh, accusations re uh, regarding uh, collusion. Uh, I didn't see the, the strong response to, to the Russians. So why would I expect more uh, if, if it's Americans who are, who are being, being uh, you know, put in the limelight? That's right. And do we ever as 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 partisans, do we ever respond the way we're supposed to to, re, to respond when something could affect our party? I think that gets to the heart of the issue. When something affects our party, we see it from a whole different lens, mostly because we think our party is so right or the other party is so wrong that regardless if we're wrong on this one issue, it's not worth to make a big it's not worth it to make a big deal about it because it could help the other side. Something I've been thinking about is that within this federal indictment, I think there was an indictment really of all of us because what they did was really just use our current state of discourse. Uh, they used our current political climate against us. They didn't really cre create much of anything. They took the narratives that we were already using against each other, uh, how we were attacking each other. And they really just put some money into furthering a divide that was already there. Um, so we gave them all the ammo and all the material that they needed. It talked about how they really just studied uh, our social media interactions and they use those social media interactions uh, against us. And so I think we all need to look at the fact that how can this be avoided and how did we add to our own deception? Uh, because in many cases this was on us and we just kind of, they just really expanded what was already going on. So an in interesting case, it didn't get enough uh, enough attention from some circles, but this isn't over. And I, I fear that we'll be talking about this for a while. Yeah, I, I think so. And we have much more to talk about after we take a quick break, including uh, President Trump's uh, uh, Blue Apron uh, style innovation uh, to uh, update uh, the food stamp program. And we'll 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 break that down for you after the break. Thank you. This episode of Church Politics is brought to you by Eastlick Coffee, a coffee roasting company serving specialty coffees that are unique yet familiar, complex and comforting, featuring diverse origins that are delicious and approachable. Use the code FORTH, that's F-O-R-T-H, to get 40% off your first bag of coffee by visiting eastlickcoffee.com. And we are back with the Church Politics Podcast on Monday. Mick Mulvaney, Director of the Office of Management and Budget, uh, told reporters about a plan from the U.S. Department of Agriculture uh, that would update the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, uh, which is uh, the, the food stamp program. Uh, and it would uh, he rolled out this program called America's Harvest Box, uh, according to NPR. Under the plan, more than 16 million households would have half of their benefits go toward the food box delivery program. And as you saw, uh, reaction to this, uh, both sort of 
uh, social media, but also there have been op-eds everywhere, Washington Post, Salon, uh, uh, New York Times has written about this. Uh, the the major pushback uh, has been the, the substantive pushback is that this plan would greatly reduce the choice available uh, to families that are on food stamps. Uh, Christine Emba, uh, I'm sorry, Liz Brunig at the Washington Post uh, made the observation that uh, conservatives don't like big government uh, until it comes to uh, policing welfare programs then the intrusion of government is seen as a benefit. Um, I I had a, Justin, I, I had a similar reaction sort of immediately. And, and I think a big part of it was this is an administration that hasn't exactly put a whole lot of rhetorical uh, uh, firepower behind uh, 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 expressing concern for uh, uh, the poor, expressing uh, a, a belief in the, in the welfare state. And so, you know, I think a uh, part of it is just uh, uh, kind of seeing what this uh, administration has voiced support for, what, the driving impulse that they seem to have. And then they roll this out. I did have a bit of a, a gut check, though, after my initial reaction, which was um, that if they're able to, I, I think at some point, there's going to be an innovation like this in government welfare programs, which is to use the buying power of the state and uh, the the new technologies, new shipping technologies, uh, new innovations in uh, service provision to make a better deal for taxpayers and uh, deliver the same or better quality for uh, for those uh, for service recipients, uh, and so. You know, part of me was like, well, well, actually, I want to hear Mick Mulvaney and the Trump administration out. Uh, uh, I think there are some interesting ideas in this plan. Uh, but the Trump administration has dedicated no time to actually uh, uh, working with anti-hunger groups to get their support. And so uh, what did uh, it was interesting to see the reaction to this uh, roll out. How did you think about uh, this this new welfare plan from the Trump administration. The first thing that came to mind for me was a question of the motive, um, because you can't separate from this from the fact that the real focus of this, even by their own words, is, is saving is about saving billions of dollars. Right. Um, yep. but the proposal was in the White House's uh, fiscal budget, um, and it, it said that it would save about $129 billion over 10 years. Now, I want to be very clear. Saving money isn't a bad thing, right? Uh, we're not going to criticize it just because it's looking at saving money, but you got to put it into context. When the tax cuts moved forward, uh, you and I openly or vocally wondered how they'd replace the lost revenue, right? We've been talking about that for some time. We fear uh, that the burden might fall on the backs of the poor. And to some extent, and I, I'm with you, I need to hear more so that the jury's still, still out. But to some extent, this kind of confirms that, right? Again, spending cuts aren't bad, but when you cut taxes on the wealthy and then you cut money going to necessities for the poor, you got to expect people to question your values and your motives. 
if we were just coming in and saying, hey, our welfare system needs to be uh, reformed. Okay, let's go in and let's reform it. But that wasn't where we started. We started with tax cuts and then we got to this lost revenue. And then how do we make up this lost revenue? And then all of a sudden we're dealing with necessities for poor for the poor and we're looking at cutting them back. Right. So the impetus for, for, for me for this is, is kind of problematic and why I still need to hear more. But you question it because you're starting oh, yeah. from a place of how can we cut? And this is where we need to cut uh, yeah. on money going to poor people. This plan maybe could work out. I don't know. I need to hear more. Uh, again, it's cutting about 50 percent of what food stamp recipients would, would get. And that 50 that, you know, that the rest of that money is going into this this harvest box. Uh, again, I do have a problem with kind of cutting off people's options uh, when it comes to food. But in my initial issue was with the impetus for this. The motivation seemed to come from, hey, we got to make up this make up this money. Cuts do have to come from somewhere. But to automatically push them off on, on the poor. That's where it started off as being problematic for me. Yeah, you, you know, Justin, you know, in politics, you can often tell who politicians are thinking of when they're rolling out policies by who's announcing it and who's who's with them for the announcement. Trump administration uh, could have rolled this out uh, with uh, secretaries of Health and Human Services and uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture could have rolled it out announcing the support of anti-hunger groups uh, because they did extensive outreach and actually consulted with those who serve the hungry and serve those who are on food stamps. Uh, and that would have inspired some confidence that, oh, this doesn't just uh, save some money on the budget and significant, uh, 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 significant savings on the budget, but it, it also is good for America, good for the social safety net and good for SNAP recipients. But they, they didn't do that. They had the director of OMB, uh, announce this plan, uh, who, who is, who is the budget guy whose primary responsibility is making sure not that the, uh, uh, not that welfare recipients are well served, but that the the budget makes sense and matches administration priorities. And, and you know, for an administration that has faced criticism about uh, whether they're trying to undermine the social safety net, whether they uh, actually care about um, uh, about uh, the the poor and, and taking on anti poverty uh, efforts, uh, just they should have some political awareness. If their goal is to actually improve the welfare system, that that's going to involve some some outreach on the front end that maybe even some other administrations wouldn't have had to do because 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 uh, uh, because they were clearer on the front end about their priorities. So uh, I, I think it was it was really um, uh, a problematic way to roll out this program. Offered some easy fodder for uh, social media critics. Uh, and if the Trump administration wants to wants to kind of get this program through without at least, uh, you know, significant pushback, they, they just need to do some do some outreach. They, they need to actually test their ideas against people who work on uh, who, not just those who work on these ideas, but they should meet with some SNAP recipients that <laughs> they should meet with some SNAP recipients and ask them, would this be something that would be helpful to you to have to. Uh, I don't know what the argument for it would be to, to have to worry um, uh, to, to have to worry less about what you're getting at the grocery store and know that you're having particular items coming in uh, 
and, and uh, you know, what, we we then see what the answers would be. That's right, because the way that it was done simply looked like a budget maneuver. Um, and it looked right. like some of the people in poverty were just lying, lying items in that maneuver in that maneuver. And that's just unacceptable. And so if they really want to do something to fix the system, if there's changes that need to be made, it needs to be done in a better way. And people are going to question those motivations as they should. So that was my problem with the proposal. I want to see more uh, of what these of what these ideas can bring. But it takes time and it you need to get some advocates of the poor and all those things on 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 board with you uh, before you move forward with something of this magnitude. Yeah. Well, let, let's let's take another very quick break, and we're going to come back and talk about Black Panther. We'll, we'll we'll be right back. All right, this is the Church Politics Podcast, and th- this past week we saw the rollout of uh, really the cultural phenomenon that is the Black Panther. Uh, I'll, I have to admit, uh, I have not been able to see it yet. I was driving up to Buffalo. For a wedding on Friday, wedding was Saturday, driving back Sunday, but today is President's Day, so it's looking pretty good. But uh, but but Justin, have you been able to to see Black Panther yet? I did have an opportunity to see Black Panther, and and I enjoyed it. Now I'm going to be honest with you, I am not a comic book guy, so I initially yeah. didn't really intend to even go see the movie. I didn't know anything about Black Panther before kind of uh, everyone started talking about it. So I want to be honest about that. Um, but I was convinced by my cousin Jermaine and some of my other friends to go see it. And I really enjoyed it. Uh, as you know, it was uh, directed by Ryan Coogler, who's actually a 31 year old uh, starred uh, Michael uh, B. Jordan, Chadwick Boseman, who is a Howard uh, University alum and and the beautiful Angela Bassett. Um, it was great acting. Uh, I thought it was uh, very layered. I'm not going to give any uh, I'm not going to uh, ruin it for anybody who hasn't seen it. But there was some strong social commentary that was in there. Uh, based on real dynamics in regard to politics and culture and also identity. Uh, and I think it was a p- important for a lot of brothers and sisters, a lot of, uh, of people of color to see those kind of characters in these movies. And so that's why everyone was excited about it. People went to the theaters dressed up and just having a good time. And that, to me, that's what it was uh, to see those images, to see a really good movie uh, produced and have money put into the creativity of folks in our our community. And I think people really enjoyed it for that. And I'll take that. And it, it, I, I enjoyed it. I would recommend folks go see it. Uh, and it had a record breaking uh, uh, weekend. Uh, it started by bringing in a hundred and, uh, 92 million, which is the uh, fifth biggest opening of all times of all time. It was the largest opening uh, for an African-American director. So that's notable. And it also brought in about 361 million uh, worldwide. So this was a success so far, and I'm I'm glad to see it. Yeah. And, you know, audiences were incredibly diverse. African-Americans turned out usually for a release of, of uh, like a like a action movie the typical uh, african-american percentage of the audience is 15 percent uh, african-americans i believe made up 36 or 37 percent of the audience um for black panther but uh, uh white folks made up 36 uh, percent of the audience for black panther as an opening too so it it, it, will, it will it will be really interesting uh to see how um how uh, uh, distributors and how big uh, uh, big houses look at these numbers and perhaps see a different 
different path forward to a blockbuster than uh, what they uh, were considering before. And, and that's part of the value of, 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 of a movie and an effort uh, like this. And so it, it'll be interesting to see. I think we might be able to look back uh, two, three, four years from now and see that sort of the, uh, the, the movies on offer, the movies that are being made, uh, were significantly, uh, you know, influenced by the success of of Black Panther, and so uh, I, I I'm looking forward to uh, looking forward to seeing it. Kendrick Lamar did the did the soundtrack, so I'm I'm I'll be uh, I'm interested to see the music. I've heard that it's just a beautiful film that just uh, um, that, that just has a, a great aesthetic to it. So. Uh, so it'll be fun to see. And then I, I just say, just it's been so fun uh, in moving to to read uh, to, to to read folks reflecting on their experience seeing the movie. And some of the uh, there have been columnists that usually don't do movie reviews, writing movie reviews. So Jamil Smith that uh, uh, wrote a pretty powerful review, uh, Jamel Bowie over at Slate. And so uh, it's just been a lot of fun. Uh, seeing folks react to react to this film, um, so so uh, we'd love to know what you think of the Black Panther. So reach out to us on Twitter at Church Politics. Drop us a line. Um, we want to know what what you thought of the movie. If you'll be going to see it a second time with a second group of friends, or just by yourself because you because you need to see it again. But we want to know what you thought of the film. Yeah, and I'm recommending it. Uh, yeah, good. Well, Justin, we did want to cover one one last subject in, in this episode. And Justin, we saw uh, again last week um, another uh, school shooting. Um, this one uh, of, I, I think, a a graphic and striking nature that that we haven't seen since Newtown. Although it's just such a such a sad thing that we can compare school shootings, that we can compare violent massacres, uh, and just how uh, how sad and uh, how traumatic they were. But that's uh, in some ways, uh, you know, the the, the state of things. Um, but, but uh, you know, I, I think we want to first just acknowledge um, and offer our, our, our prayers and thoughts with um, the, the families of those who were, were shot and killed. Uh, there was a Washington Post story um, out today about uh, the, the students having to go to funeral the, the survivors having to go to funeral after funeral over the last over the last few days and just the traumatic wearing process of that so we want to pray for the survivors for the school for the whole community uh and um and i i, th I think that's that's important uh but uh, justin it, it you you really sense um kind of fatalism uh seeping into these kinds of these kinds of conversations and uh, we saw former president obama kind of 
I think since that and pushed back against that in one of his rare public comments, uh, uh, he, he tweeted out, we are, we are not helpless. And, and I think that's because he, he senses the kind of, uh, how this is making folks feel defeated. Like this is, this is an inevitable part of American life. Uh, just from what, what reflections do you have on, on, on what we've seen over the last, over the last week and, and, uh, and, and just the 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 trauma and um, the the heartbreak uh, uh, of of another school shooting. Yeah. So first and foremost, you know, hearts go out to those who are mourning lost ones, whether they be friends or family members. Uh, spend some time praying for them, um, praying that you know the void that is in their hearts, you know, hopefully not be filled with anger, although that is understandable, but kind of be filled with the the love of of, of Jesus Christ. Um, but also spending time pr uh, praying for the shooter um, and, and understanding even even for him that, you know, our guy can can uh, heal his heart and, uh, and and bring him to a point of reconciliation as well. Uh, so those are some things that we you know, we I've been doing with my church community and just with my family, because these are very serious issues. Uh, just for a little bit of background, guys, you know, there were 17 people were killed in this shooting that occurred last week at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. There are 15 other folks who were injured. And the uh, shooter apparently was Nick Nicholas Cruz, who was a former student uh, that transferred to a school because of his to a different school because of some behavioral issues. Uh, he was apprehended and confessed uh, to the crime. It's just sad. It's been a sad, very sad back and forth. Something else that came out that was unfortunate was that the FBI had apparently received a call in January that Cruz was planning a shooting, but somehow or another uh, failed to act. And so all these things are sad, but I joined the call for sensible gun control. I mean, that, that's, you know, there's no two ways about it. We need some sensible gun control. And a lot of these issues, Americans agree. I want to give some suggestions of, of ways we could go about sensible gun control. You're talking about things like a ban on the sale of guns to, to people on the terrorist watch list and a ban uh, of the sale to the mentally ill uh, also could require um, universal background checks for gun owners without these huge loopholes, right? Uh, require gun owners to report stolen guns, uh, no sale to people with violent crime convictions. Uh, and then something else is the purchase age uh, going up to 21. So for certain guns right now, the age is 18 and there's talk about moving that up uh, to 21. Those are some fairly uh, uh, um, common sense re uh, reforms that we can make. And I think we need to all join together and try to do that. Right now, I think it's better for the community. And I, I just was thinking about this. It's better to me for the people to be talking about this issue and for the politicians just to start doing something about it. I would prefer that none of them had anything else to say because I was just watching an interview where you had a Democrat and a Republican kind of going at it, selling wolf tickets once again. I just want y'all to stop talking about it because you're not you're not right. making it better. Just do something. Talk with your policy. Talk with your policy policy prescription. And I think on a lot of issues, that's what we need to be telling our our politicians because they spend more time being commentators and more time right. throwing narratives back and forth than even doing anything. I don't need you to tell me how to feel about it. We have commentators. We have journalists. We have plenty of people with opinions. I need you to listen and do something about it. Uh, Axios was reporting this morning 
that a senior Trump administration official uh, said that uh, they would be uh, looking again at Senator John Cornyn's background checks legislation. Uh, the, the senior uh, official said he wouldn't be surprised if that got a second look in the Senate, which, uh, you know, would be a small step forward. It certainly won't appease, uh, nor necessarily should it, uh, uh, gun control advocates or those who have been calling for significant action. But uh, the, 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 this should be the uh, the the floor, <laughs> a consideration of Senator John Cornyn's background checks legislation. John Cornyn being from Texas, being a very strong supporter of the Second Amendment, uh, in, in many ways unimpeachable. Uh, <laughs> bringing up a Republican senator's background checks legislation should be the the, the bare minimum that uh, uh, that this this Congress is able to summon up. And so we'll we'll keep an eye on whether uh, whether that happens, whether it gets a vote or if uh once again uh various interests uh are able to to shut shut this down uh yeah it needs to get a vote immediately no excuses yeah right uh and this is this is something that you could call you call your senators uh and and tell them that that that's what you uh expect uh again it senator john cornyn he wrote legislation uh, with the intent that it could pass in a Republican uh, in a Republican Senate, and so it won't have everything everybody's looking for. But if the Trump White House is floating it out there, then their feet need to be held to the fire. And so uh, call your senator, uh, let it be known to them, and let it be known uh, to 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 those you influence that uh, the, the 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 least that they could do in the wake of this another school shooting is uh is to bring up this this common sense legislation that's right and 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 no more talking points from politicians we've heard all the corny talking points do something about it we we didn't pay you guys to be narrators or commentators we know what your argument is and all that other stuff do something about it form relationships do whatever you have to do stop the blame games and just get it done yeah well justin uh that just about brings us to a close. Um, I, I did want to mention uh, Christianity Today. I was honored. Uh, Christianity Today is actually running an exclusive excerpt from the afterword, the new afterword of my book, Reclaiming Hope. Uh, the, the excerpt focuses on uh, Paul's call in Galatians for the church there. Uh, the church is there to bear another's burdens. And I reflect uh, in the excerpt on uh, how that is a call for us in this time, in this polarized political environment, that we need to start thinking about uh, how we bring in the concerns and the perspectives of those who would otherwise not be heard among the leaders that we have access to. Uh, and so I, I break that down in the article, but really glad to um, see that up. Big thanks to Christianity Today for running it. And I hope it's uh, hope it's helpful for folks, but but really it's just a reflection uh, over you know really my time in in politics, um, my time in the White House, my time traveling the country since and around the election. That we need a radical form of politics uh, in order to to break through um, this this 
polarized environment that is, that is in many ways, you know, uh, severely hampering uh, the progress we're able to make on an issue like gun control. Uh, and so I hope folks will check that out at Christianity Today this week. Good stuff, brother. I look forward to uh, reading it. Uh, and I've also noticed you've been a man on a mission when it comes to writing these articles. They've been all great articles, but you've been prolific within the past year, man. So I'm, I'm glad at the work that you're putting out there and really trying to change the system as we have it today, brother. So keep up the good work. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. A- anything, uh, anything from your end? Any, any final thoughts for the week? Final thought from me. Obviously, let's get gun legislation done. We need something sensible that people can agree on. The American consensus is there. We just need to get it done. And then finally, once again, man, we have the Frontline Discipleship Tour launch this Friday uh, featuring uh, Dr. Tony Evans and the and campaign crew here in Atlanta. So if you are in Atlanta, come on out to Greater Pine Grove Baptist Church at seven o'clock on Friday uh, for the Frontline Discipleship Tour launch. It should be a great time. Make it out. Make it out. All right, folks. Uh, This is the Church Politics Podcast. Pleasure, as always, being with you. We'll see you next week. Thank you very much. Take care. I'm grooving for the activists and graduates. I'm an advocate for those feeling abandonment. In the favelas and slums together with inhabitants, it's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The only thing good came out of Nazareth. This is the groove. Tell me, can you handle it? I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a fade.